Uh, we are going to be continuing into, uh, you know, apologetics like we've been doing for the past couple of weeks. Uh, and specifically tonight, we're going to be looking at uh, atheism and uh, apparently evolutionary naturalism, a little one of the flavors of atheism, because there's, uh, as you'll find out in the weeks to come, there is a good bit of flavors of atheism. It's not just uh, atheism describes every, every single one. It's definitely a big category for smaller individual beliefs. But, uh, you know, with that being said, I'm uh, hand it off to Josh, who's going to pray for us and get into the meat and potatoes of everything. So you can go ahead and do that whenever you wish, Josh. All right. Well, here we go. Time to pray. Father, thank you for making yourself known clearly through what you have made, through your son who came into time, space, and history, walked among us, spoke to us, healed us, died ultimately to appease the wrath meant for us, rose from the dead before all, so that there is no question as to the truth of what you have done. And we can only respond with love, gratitude, worship, change our hearts so that we would do so, open our minds to see you and your truth clearly, that we may know how to give an answer to all who would ask us for the hope that you've given us. Amen. All right. So, uh, preface before I go, we have a lot of folks in here tonight, probably because of the subject matter, maybe, tends to draw people in. Atheism is a bit of a, you know, thing that people believe, I guess. Uh, people you probably know, so maybe your family members, friends, etc. So, before I go in, I'm not going to be reading chat uh, while I do the first part, because I want to be able to get through everything I have, which is quite a bit of stuff, and in a timely fashion, so that we can unhostage you at the normal time. But I will look at it after I finish. But if you ask me something mid-flow, sometimes I respond while I'm explaining. I probably won't tonight. I'm going to put that away. So, all right. So the last four weeks now, I think, we've been covering apologetics, biblical apologetics. Apologetics is uh, how we go about defending the faith, responding to arguments and uh, worldviews which oppose and contradict Christianity. And it is a, a, a means of us bringing the gospel to bear onto the lives of, of those who currently reject it in the, with the aim that they would cease their rebellion and repent and embrace the truth of God's grace in the gospel. So if you haven't been around for those, I recommend going back and listening because I will not have time uh, or the headspace to recap all of it as we are pretty deep into it at this point. That being said, a few comments on method and recap are necessary 
first, I want us to look at a text that I did not have us look at over the last few weeks, which is, which is Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Now, these verses come one after the other, and it is one uh, of which a critic of Christianity may say that uh, this is a contradiction in the Bible. Well, if you read it carefully and in a meaningful way, you will see, as I will explain shortly, there's no contradiction here. It's using the same phrase in a different sense in each instance. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And this text is a pretty succinct summary of the method we've been putting forth, the presuppositional method. There's a two-pronged approach to our apologetic. One is more of a defensive aspect, and one is more of an offensive, not offense in terms of trying to offend the person, though that may end up happening unintentionally because of the nature of the truth being offensive to many unbelievers. But Offensive in terms of, of it is is going after what they believe specifically rather than just defending their ob- against their objections to Christianity. <clears throat> so the first prong of our approach is standing on the Christian worldview and responding to objections to it. This falls into the first verse, verse four. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And so we're not going to pretend, uh, engage in in falsehood and in, in a kind of lying with the unbeliever standing before us. Uh, pretend like we can set our Christian our, our Christian worldview aside and think about the truth claims of Christianity apart from affirming them as foundational to reality. So we're not going to pretend like there's a neutral position between our two perspectives that we can both come into and that we won't bring in presuppositions about the world that we already hold to into that conversation. You can't do that because we're not talking about isolated truth claims. Religious truth claims are worldview claims. You don't have a category of religion and then politics and then cooking and then science and then psychology and then not that's not how it works religious categories are worldview categories they undergird and hold up everything else and so when you're approaching religious questions they are uh, as francis schaefer once put once put it uh, they're total truth capital T truth in the sense that uh, they are all-encompassing truths. They are total systems of truth. They're not just isolated factual claims that you can examine apart from integrating it into a total worldview and and thought system. And and so we're, we're not going to play the game, so to speak. Uh, when when challenged on, hey, hey well, you know, y- you have to demonstrate to me the truth of Christianity on my terms, says the unbeliever. No, that's foolishness because the truth of Christianity is a necessary precondition, as we've been 
talking about. Again, a lot of this language I've defined and explained in the past few weeks, so this is a flyby. Is provides the necessary preconditions for the intelligibility of everything. So for us to understand each other, for us to have a conversation, Christianity has to be true. For us to reason, for us to have logic that's consistent and able to stand on its own two feet, Christianity has to be true. Therefore, we can't set it aside and then use the very tools that Christianity provides to then determine its truth. I mean, you'll find that Christianity is true, surprise, because you're using tools that Christianity provides. But you also can't use tools that Christianity militates against to then establish its truth, because of course it's, it, you're going to conclude that it's not true. If your starting presupposition is Christian, then you'll have Christian conclusions. If your starting presupposition is not Christian, then of course you won't have Christian conclusions about the world. And so we're not going to answer the full according to his folly, us, you be like him, lest you fall into the same trap of starting from a non-Christian presupposition and then obviously ending in non-Christian conclusions. However, verse 5 comes in. It says, answer a fool according to his folly. Why? Lest he be wise in his own eyes. And so this is where our second prong of our approach is to answer the fool, to do an internal critique of the opposing worldview, to step into that worldview knowing that it's false because it doesn't provide proper preconditions for intelligibility. It cannot bear the weight, the burden of reality. Knowing that, you just have to press on it hard enough in the right pressure points, and it'll collapse. And so there will be a fundamental contradiction somewhere within their worldview. We just have to find it. And so we step into their position, step into their mindset, into their worldview, and say, let's, let, let's follow the trail where it leads, shall we? Let's start with your assumptions and see where we get. And it will end in absurdity. So, we are dealing with worldviews as total systems. Christ, as we looked at in 1 Peter, has authority over every area of life. We are to set him apart as Lord, as, as holy, uh, in our hearts before we go about giving our defenses. He is Lord over every area of life. So when you're engaging with an unbeliever, you have to carry that with you. You can't set aside the lordship of Christ in order to have a more pleasant conversation that is, has less friction in it. That's that's not how we how we do things. So, one more qualifier before we get into atheism tonight. Whenever you're speaking with someone, they're not going to have a night, nice and neatly packaged worldview ready to just hand to you, or you hear them say, I'm an atheist, and suddenly you go, oh, well, then I know exactly what you believe. This is part of the problem is that most people, probably a lot of you as well, have not thought through how your ultimate commitments, your presuppositions, carry through to every area of life. I mean, it's honestly, that, that's part of what discipleship is. Uh, when we're discipling someone in the faith, it's showing them how to take the truth 
found in God's word and apply it to every area of their life to become, for lack of a, a better phrase, increasingly Christian across their entire life in everything that they say, think, and do. So a lot of people haven't thought through how their different beliefs connect or hang together. In fact, a lot of their beliefs are probably contradictory. And if they haven't thought about it very carefully or for long enough, then when someone says, well, I'm an atheist, that doesn't mean that they hold to a completely coherently atheistic worldview. Not that atheism is internally coherent, but rather that they haven't taken their atheism all the way in every area of their life. In fact, we know they haven't. Because if they did, they wouldn't be trying to speak with you or understand you. Because again, other worldviews cannot provide the necessary preconditions of the intelligibility of language or speech or us, you know, being able to understand <clears throat> one another. So that being said, ask questions. We had a really good example of this kind of march through the, the server uh, last week, I think. And I'll go back and reference a lot of this conversation probably uh, next week or the week after when I cover the logical problem of evil, because that was the main, uh, at least presenting problem this person had with Christianity. And one of the things that I did when trying to tackle it is, is I, I asked them a lot of questions. Now, did I go a little hard in the paint occasionally asking things that they didn't maybe didn't understand or have answers to a little bit? And I, I do that with atheists primarily because they often come in saying things like, I'm here to use logic and reason to defeat Christianity. And you can show by asking the right questions, if you're familiar with the field enough, that they haven't studied logic at all. And, and sometimes that's helpful to, to move past that smokescreen is to demonstrate, hey, I, I think you actually haven't read a logic textbook ever. Um, so that's the purpose of asking some of those kinds of questions um, is, is to try to move past that as a uh, it's, it's usually a front. Um, but but asking good questions is your best tool when speaking with another person to determine their ultimate faith commitments. Everyone has faith commitments. Everyone has presuppositions that they assume from the outset in order to get their worldview off the ground. And determining that is most often found through asking good questions. So as we move forward and we look at a lot of these worldviews, you may find people who self-identify as an atheist, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Mormon, but don't have all of the pieces here. I am presenting to you tonight and in the nights moving forward the strongest version of these beliefs as they appear in the most eloquent presentations of them in books and, and, and literature and other media. Uh, so your kind of wild Reddit atheist might not 
have a lot some of these beliefs he might not know what empiricism and rationalism are because he hasn't thought about them or doesn't know about them and that's fine um it doesn't it it means that you are well prepared when the guy who does know what those things are comes along so i'm preparing you for the worst case scenario not the reddit atheist who only knows one argument against christianity and he just spams it repeatedly as if you know that that's that that's a you know sufficient basis for being an atheist um so that's my 15 minute qualification to all of this keep that in mind what i'm going to try to present to you tonight and the nights moving forward are the stronger versions of these people who have thought them through more carefully than the person you probably find on the street or in your high school classroom or maybe in your family uh, they might not have thought about all this that carefully or have connected some of the dots. Okay, great. That out of the way, let's look at tonight evolutionary naturalism as a worldview. Now, this is a subset of atheism. So what is atheism? Well, it's hard to pin down. The reason is that the history of atheism is unique in and of itself, where anyone who wasn't a Christian was sometimes called an atheist. In fact, Christians were called atheists by the Romans because they didn't subscribe to the Roman religion. So atheism as a word, when you see it in older historical writings, pre-Darwin really, it it often means someone who just is not a Christian. And then if you go back farther than that, it means someone who wasn't a Roman pagan <laughs> who actually it, it can sometimes. So sometimes the atheist is the Christian. If you go back far enough, at least and depending on who you're reading. So it, it's as interesting history as a word. And it is fundamentally a, a, a negative position. What I mean by that is that uh, it is a negation of a theistic proposition. So theism, belief that there is a theos, a god of some kind, then atheism, the A is the, ne the negative prefix. Uh, it's negating theism. Now, every, this is important to remember because atheists will try to use this tactic in conversation if they're debating over the word atheism proper is that they'll say the burden of proof is on the theist the, what does that mean the burden of proof means that, that you i don't have to demonstrate my atheism to you you have to demonstrate your theism to me because i am taking a neutral position on on the question of whether god exists I'm taking the, the the default in their mind is atheism because the uh, common phrase is extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, et cetera, et cetera. Things like that are said that that the theistic claim is the one that has to prove itself because it is making a positive assertion about the world. Now, this is a rhetorical trick. It's not true. It's simply because the word atheism has the the negative prefix 
But atheism is a positive assertion about the world. How do you switch the rhetoric around? It's quite simple. Theism, Christian theism specifically, which is what we would be defending, not theism general, because we'll be opposing theism general many times in the future uh, on, in this study. The, Christian theism asserts not just the existence of God, but also something about the fundamental nature of all of reality. Atheism, by contrast, by asserting that there is no God in this existing universe, asserts a positive claim that we live in a godless universe, that the universe is such that there is no God, which is now a positive claim. So it's a rhetorical trick. Don't fall for it. You can flip the tables just as easily. You can make atheism a positive assertion by simply focusing on what it is positively claiming. So this distinguishes itself from something called agnosticism, which we won't cover here. We'll, we'll think about skepticism some down the road, which is what the agnostic is. He's a skeptic. He's saying, I, I don't know. Rather than saying the universe is godless, he says, I don't know. Maybe there is. Maybe there isn't. I have no idea. Then there's a strong version of agnosticism that says, I don't know, and no one can know. Now that is actually its own worldview. There's, there's the general skeptic who's just like, I have no idea. Maybe you can help me out. Maybe, maybe you, seem, you, know, you seem to be on to something Christian. Tell me. Help me. That's a different person than the strong agnostic who is saying, no one can have knowledge of this subject, namely whether God exists. It is impossible to know. That's a very strong claim, and you'll find it in the world. So I will mention it here, but we'll leave it for now. So atheism is very hard to define, hence why we're going to take a few weeks to look at all the different strains of what, what has what are atheistic worldviews at bottom? They are worldviews which reject, deny, and fundamentally repudiate the existence of God, specifically the Christian God in most cases, though they will also repudiate other forms of theism as well. We're going to look at those. So the one we're looking at tonight is evolutionary naturalism. But before we go there, there's one more thing to cover, which is the different epistemological views an atheist might hold. This is very important. And we'll cover them again as we move forward. Within these different strains of atheism, you will find different epistemological approaches. If you don't remember, epistemology is our theory of knowledge, or rather our, our view of how do I know what I know, or can I know things at all? The atheist will typically take one of three perspectives and will often switch them out mid-conversation. And this way you have to track this. It's very important to keep an eye on this during conversation with an atheist is they will switch gears between these three different epistemological views mid-conversation whenever it benefits them in the argument. So first one is empiricism. And this is the foundation of of evolutionary naturalism. Empiricism is uh, 
evidentiary. Uh, it's 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 based on the sense experience, and that is what constitutes evidence. So whenever an atheist starts asking you for evidence, evidence, evidence of God's existence, etc., they are engaging in empiricism. They're saying, I don't know something until I can engage with it in the world with one of my five senses. This is the empiricist approach. So the atheists, when they engage in empiricism, they're going to demand evidence. So the question you have to ask is, uh, what constitutes evidence for you? Does historical evidence count of the past, things that you can't always engage with? I cannot go and, with my senses, engage with Genghis Khan. I can't. I can't do it. We might have relics, artifacts, drawings, but the man himself, I cannot go and speak with him or hear him. I can't do it. So a strong empiricism can't do history. It falls apart. There's other things you can't do as well, but I'll leave that aside for the moment. But it's important to ask, what constitutes evidence? When you're asking me for evidence, what do you mean? Very important question. The second epistemological perspective, they may switch between these, is rationalism. Rationalism is that we know what we know through our reason, through logic. Through logical reasoning, sound logical reasoning, we can arrive at truth about the outside world. Now, anyone but the Christian has no reason to believe this is true. No reason at all. That logic either, that, that, that it maintains, that it works, and that it actually produces truth of the outside world. No reason to believe that. We'll go into that soon. But that may be one of the other epistemological approaches that they'll take with you is, well, reason shows me that Christianity is false. It's like, oh, really? Well, reason shows me that atheism is false. Now let's have an actual, you know, get into the, the, the nitty gritty of that. But that's one they may use. The last one is intuitionism. I made this word up because no one says they're taking this perspective, but they do it all the time. Namely, it seems right to me. It feels right. Or no one thinks that. Or these kinds of intuitive claims. These aren't ones that they'll be proud about, but you've got to keep an eye out for them. Because this is at bottom what many of them are engaging in and what holds up a lot of the arguments. Is, is actually intuitions. So these are usually informed by cultural context. For example, someone says, well, it, it doesn't seem right to me that God would, would make, to use a you know, contemporary example, that God would make all of these people and then send most of them to hell. Now, we can challenge all kinds of things about that statement. But the epistemological assumption is that our intuitions are reliable. It doesn't seem right to me. I'm following my gut on this one that, that your God doesn't exist because it, it doesn't 
feel it gives me a weird feeling in my stomach to think about that god existing that doesn't mean anything you might just have eaten some bad mexican that day like that 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 doesn't actually give you any knowledge of the outside world and so keep an eye out for for the the key phrases around it it doesn't seem right to me or it doesn't feel like those are intuition based claims and that's not how they really want to argue, typically. Typically, the atheist doesn't want to argue that way. They usually want to use an empirical approach or a rationalist approach. But often, when you challenge those things, you end up with intuitions. For example, if you dig down deep into the rationalist approach, they ultimately have to say, well, it just seems like logic works. Just feels like that's, that's a good way to do things. Well, great. Your entire worldview is built on a gut feeling. How's that for shaky ground to stand on? So, empiricism, rationalism, and my made-up intuitionism are our three common epistemological categories, theories of knowledge that an atheist might adopt. That being said, Let's look at evolutionary naturalism. First, we must define evolution. There are different types of evolutionary theory. Broad brush, by evolution, I simply mean the perspective that all life in the universe evolved out of something else. That there is a infinitely regressive causal chain because even the big bang can't start with nothing it has to start with something uh, nothing has to be redefined constantly to mean something uh, so ev an evolutionary perspective is going to assert that there's a infinitely regressive causal chain that then somehow gets us to where we are today. That life evolves through some kind of process. They may have a Darwinian perspective on that. They may have some other kind of perspective on the process of evolution. But the general thesis is that through some kind of mechanism, some kind of blind mechanism, uh, we got to where we are today in terms of the life forms that exist, at least on our planet, and in our universe uh, through this mechanism. Now, they are theistic evolutionists. There are people who believe that, that God either set the evolutionary machine in motion or intervened specially to, to get the products that he wanted, but used evolutionary methods. I am not theistic evolutionist. I think there's an infinite amount of problems with it. But just letting you know that that's a thing that exists that's all uh i don't recommend it as a worldview or a lifestyle but it's out there it's a thing but typically someone who holds some kind of evolutionary theory is an atheist which means they have to believe in some kind of blind mechanism that is purposeless that that it, it is utilitarian the, the mechanism that that produces new stages of, of life forms. 
Now we can make distinction between macroevolution and microevolution. Macroevolution is is typically uh, described as species to species evolution. So a fish to a monkey to a human, species to species. Micro would be adaptations. Um, these are really the things that Darwin observed were, were, were micro adaptations because he couldn't possibly live long enough to observe a species to species uh, transformation. He just inf inferred from one kind of thing to a different kind of thing, which is part of the problem with his inference. Now, we have evolution, but combined with naturalism, this is typically the perspective that is why we call it evolutionary naturalism. Naturalism is the perspective that there is only the natural world. There are no supernatural entities, no supernatural uh, materials, there's no spirit, there's no soul, there's no immaterial mind, there are no immaterial laws, there's only the natural world. And the natural world is made up of physical matter in motion. Time, space, matter, natural world, that's all there is. So evolutionary naturalism is a combination of these two perspectives, that, that life evolved over time, species species evolution through a blind mechanism, and that all there is to these life forms is the natural, is what, what we can see through the senses, uh, what we can perceive through our sense experience, is the, the material world, and that's all there is. It's only the material world. Uh, there is no soul, there is no mind, there is no... Uh, supernatural entities, there are no angels or devils roaming about, there's no God, uh, there's only the natural world. So we have evolutionary naturalism as one of the common flavors of atheism. So what's the problem with evolutionary naturalism? Well, we have our two-pronged approach. We have standing on the Christian worldview and responding to the objector. They say, well, evolution disproves your Christianity. I respond by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's it. <laughs> so we don't have to go about uh, nitpicking through all of the uh, nuances of evolutionary theory. We have a sure word from God, namely Genesis 1, verse 1, that says that he made everything. That he made it in a particular way. And that's that. It's actually that simple. So this is uh, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Because the reason is because we're, what we're going to do next. Which is to show him that his, evolution, uh, his evolutionary perspective and his naturalistic perspective are actually contradictory to one another. Now why is that? Well... When you respond with Genesis 1.1, you will get a flurry of scientific argumentation. Citation of scientific studies or arguments. Scientific argumentation requires something to be true about us and about the world. What is that? Well, it requires that the world be knowable through our sense experience. And that our sense experience is a reliable faculty that produces true knowledge 
about the outside world. So why is, is this a problem for the evolutionary naturalist? Well, naturalism, respective that there's only matter in motion, et cetera, et cetera, and evolutionary theory end up generating a contradiction because on naturalism, there are no immaterial, objective, true laws of logic upon which scientific theories depend. Scientific argument depends upon logic and language to accurately represent what they're thinking to you, language to work. And then for the argument to actually be sound and valid, that requires laws of logic. Well, there's no reason to trust if evolutionary theory is true, that blind evolutionary mechanisms have produced reliable logical faculties in the human species. Why is that? Well, uh, one of my favorite representations of this argument comes from uh, a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga in his book, Where the Conflict Really Lies, The Evolutionary Argument Against Naturalism, or the EAAN. Now, he gets very complex and philosophical with it. I'm going to break it down pretty simple for you with his illustration he uses, which I find very enjoyable. And it simply goes like this. Uh, you have a primitive hominid uh, named Paul. And he names him Paul out of a bit of irony and a jab at the atheist, since Paul the Apostle is quite famous for his apologetic work, as you all know. And Paul has developed a belief about the world around him that triggers whenever he's in danger. Now, his sense experience reports to him that there's a tiger chasing him, and this motivates him to do all kinds of things that are beneficial to his survival and the continuation of the human race. But there's no tiger. There's no tiger at all. The tiger isn't really there. But this is consistent with evolutionary theory. As long as the adaptation, the evolution that happens, produces survival and utility, it doesn't matter whether it's true. And so now we generate a contradiction. If evolutionary theory is correct, you have no reason to trust the very reasoning faculties that you have used to produce evolutionary theory in your mind. And since, nat since you also believe naturalism is true, well, how'd you get there? Through rational faculties that evolutionary theory gives you no reason to trust. If evolutionary theory is true, naturalism is either true or false, but you couldn't know. And if naturalism is true, then all there is is nature, all there is is matter, then there can't be the necessary preconditions for logical laws in order for you to get to your evolutionary theory. So everything just implodes in on itself. You have no reason to trust the rational faculties that are producing either evolution or naturalism in, in, in your brain. Uh, 
or in your mind, I mean, we're Christians, so we can say the mind, but for them, uh, there's no reason to trust it because it's just neurons firing at this temperature to increase your survival. That's it. This is what brain gas does at 68 degrees Fahrenheit. It produces evolutionary thoughts, naturalistic thoughts, beliefs, beliefs about the world that it doesn't matter if they're true. It only matters if they increase our survival. That's all that matters when it comes to beliefs. And so I have, I, I wouldn't even know if you were really real. Because I couldn't trust that my sense experience of the outside world was, was reporting to me what the outside world is really like. In fact, you might be some kind of other creature. And my eyes are reporting back to me that you're huge, that you look human so that I won't freak out or run away or, or something like that because you're a friendly creature. And so I've evolved such that I see this kind of creature that I see it so that it looks human, even though it's not like all of that, those kinds of things erupt out of an evolutionary naturalistic perspective. You can't hold the two together. They can't hang together at all. They collapse in on each other. You have no objective basis upon which to argue because of your naturalism. And you have no reason to trust your sense experience because of your evolutionary theory which means that it collapses two of the primary epistemological perspectives you could take, empiricism and rationalism. If naturalism is true, rationalism is false. If evolutionary theory is true, empiricism is false, which means that the basis of your own worldview doesn't exist. The conclusions of evolutionary naturalism cannot be supported by their base, empiricism and rationalism. They undercut their own foundations because they're stealing from the Christian worldview. They're stealing logic, reason, sense experience, all these things that God made sense experience to report back to us true things about the world around us. Why? Genesis 2. He told us to take dominion over the world and, and to work the garden and keep it. So he gave us faculties so that we know which tree is which, which animal is which. We see Adam accurately reporting back his sense experience about the world. God designed us that way. Laws of logic. We'll go into that in the future uh, when we look at some of the logical argumentation that the atheist provides. But there you go. That is our two-pronged approach against evolutionary naturalism. We have... Biblical response, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, tells us all we need to know about creation of the world, creation of mankind, that we can trust our sense experience about the world because God designed us in such a way as to work the ground and keep it. To Now, the fall has impacted our sense experience. So, so you know, the, uh, the objection may come, well, what, you know, why do some people see things that aren't really there? What, why, why do these, or hear things that aren't really there? Uh, things of that nature. Well, why does our hearing go bad? Our eyesight fail? We go blind? Uh, well, that is a product of the fall. And it's very important to have an accurate understanding of the fall and the pervasive effects of it, not just upon the, the human heart and, and, and the proclivities of our sinful nature, but also upon the material world. That death and decay 
are not natural things in terms of being part of nature as designed originally, but are unnatural in the sense that they are perversions, they are degradations, they are the decay that came in with the fall with Adam's sin. <clears throat> and so we have, again, staying on, on the biblical truth, we have responses from within the Bible. We can explain things like blindness that the atheist cannot explain. They might not like that people go blind. Neither should we. But they can't provide an account for it, and we can all right, so that's about it. Um, let me pray, and I'll wrap up so we can field any questions, because I'm sure there's questions. Maybe they won't be. Who knows? All right. Lord, thank you for giving sight to the blind. And that is a picture of the sight you give to us in our hearts, that let us see the, the, the truth and the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is the solution to all of our unbelief, all of our rebellion, and the solution to our family and friends and those who we will meet who hold to these worldviews that are self-destructive and cannot stand in the light of your truth. Help us to be bold and proclaiming the truth to those around us, especially as things become, the pressure to not do so increases in, in many of our cultural contexts. Give us courage, give us trust in you, and help us to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Amen. Amen. Good stuff, Josh. Um, now is the time for questions. If you want to uh, type your questions in chat or if you want to use your microphone, just be mindful of other people trying to talk at the same time. Looks like you already got a question from Bango Bongo. Um, so you should probably just go ahead and answer that one while other people start typing up or thinking. Looking up. I'm I'm trying to look up the chat. Is it's 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 very recent. It's uh like four messages right. up. It's at bottom. I, yep. I got I got to the top. I got to the top. Yes. Uh, what's wrong with theistic evolutionary theory? Sure, let me put a pin in that by doing this. Oh, it scrolled me back down. That's so rude. Okay, here's a good one. What if atheists talk about how to talk to Christians like we are talking about atheists? They do. They do. They have conferences. They have all kinds. Yeah. Um, that's the atheist militant, usually. Um, those are the, the folks who 
uh, actively or they're, they 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 will self-describe themselves as anti-theist and they actively attempt to deconvert people or rather to convert them to atheism. They're out there. Um, they typically get they get taught in some of these things because I've listened to them before to avoid people who engage in presuppositional apologetics specifically. They just won't talk to you. <laughs> um, if you start to take this kind of route um, and, and it's because you, you, you're refusing to play the game. You're refusing to answer the fool according to this folly. Um, and, and, and they don't appreciate that very much. So, uh, yeah, but it's out there. Uh, I could be a lizard, but you could see me as a human. Yeah, if evolutionary naturalism were true, then I would have no reason to believe that the person standing in front of me is actually a person because I couldn't trust my sense experience. Uh, are there atheists that play on both sides? Can you expand on that? Not sure entirely what you're asking there, uh, Sage. So atheists try to make Christians think that we be on earth for no reason. Uh, yeah. Um, it is like suicide, which gave rise to the existentialist movement, which tried to find uh, philosophical school of thought that tries to find meaning and purpose through, well, creating it yourself, um, embracing the absurdity of life and, and then, uh, and then just living in spite of the absurdity, uh, which is really the only way to not conclude that atheism should consistently followed uh, take you to either the ubermensch of Nietzsche or suicide in despair. Um, you either just live however you decide and please according to whatever passion you have at the moment, whatever whimsy you happen to feel, and that might work out for you, um, or you just expedite the, the, the painful life of suffering you're going to inevitably have if you're not allowed to you know, do that for whatever reason. Uh, let me see. Yeah, so so that's a good question. Are the atheists that play on both sides, like they go to Christianity and go back to asking if God exists, like you told us not to step on their side? Yeah, so um, they will, so there are attempts at internal critiques of Christianity to try to show that Christianity is, is, is within, its, within itself incoherent or contradictory. Um, that's actually some of the arguments we're going to look at in a few weeks are, are the attempts to do that because we can critique their worldview, but if they come back and show that ours is also inconsistent, then we've got a problem here. Neither of us are, are correct. Um, so yes, they're, most of the arguments against Christianity are attempts to do that. They'll try to show contradictions in the Bible or try to show inconsistencies within the character or nature of God. Uh, the logical problem of evil does this, the euthyphro dilemma does this. So, yeah, 
um, it'll be something that we will uh, we will go into future weeks. Uh, I get why you can't make sense of reality with an evolutionary perspective, but can you go into why logic fails again? Shouldn't you be able to use logic in abstracts in evolution? So the reason that it fails, uh, so, so it's not that it can't be used, it's the question of its reliability in determining truth. So there's no reason to believe on evolutionary naturalism that my train of logic, uh, premise A, premise B, conclusion C, or however you want to formulate it, actually produces truth, uh, a true conclusion. There's no reason to believe that, that the, the, the logical steps I've taken have actually led me to an accurate conclusion about the world around me because I can't know anything about the world around me. Because I've, I've evolved to survive, not to know. And so, uh, on top of that, for, for logic to be consistent across time, it requires an external objective standard of logic. In Christianity, we have that. We have God is truth. Um, within other perspectives, they don't. The natural world does not give rise to immaterial logical laws. It doesn't. Uh, it, it doesn't work. So uh, evolution doesn't produce immaterial laws because from the naturalist perspective, all there is is nature. So whenever they try to use logic, you go, uh-uh, you can't use that. You don't get to. Your worldview doesn't, doesn't have the necessary preconditions to make logic reliable or trustworthy. The Buddhist who comes along and says, actually, contradictions don't exist. Uh, the, the evolutionary naturalist has no ground to stand on to tell him that's wrong. The contradictions are real. He has no ground to contradict him. Uh, I am familiar with... So, let me read this out. Talking a bit more about rationalism... Uh, not 100% related to today, you may have heard of Leibniz. He believed that a belief in God must have a rational basis and not a basis of faith alone. Would you argue, argue for or against this? Um, I would argue against it to a point. And what I mean by that is that uh, your belief in God can be supported by reasons. I'm not against having reasons to believe in God. But the foundation of your belief can't be reason. Why? Because that would place uh, reason as a self-attesting authority that it, it is able to justify itself apart from God's existence. But if you believe in God who created all things, including your reason, that all things are contingent upon him, that he is prime reality and everything else hangs off of that fact, then any reasons, any rational basis that you give ends up being grounded in the existence of God as a precondition. That's getting a little bit more technical than I think I've gotten so far, but I hope that made some degree of sense. 
So there, there's plenty of reasons to believe in God. In fact, God gives us lots of reasons to believe in him uh, the, through the things that are made. We see that in Romans 1. We see that in, in the Psalm uh, Psalm 20 or 9. No, is it 22? No, 21, 20. It's in, near the beginning of the Psalms. I can't remember which one it is. Um... That's partialism, Patrick, but close. Uh, I don't think anyone understood what I just said. Let me... Fire, you have a question? Use your mic. Um, sorry if you can hear my brother in the background. Um, I was just wondering. I didn't really get it when you said when, how you answered one of my questions about, about going into more detail about theistic evolutionary like christians that believe in evolution because oh i i didn't answer your question oh, that okay, was that, that was why <laughs> i i just realized i didn't answer it i i i, I pinned it way up and then forgot i didn't <laughs> i forgot to answer it um so great great question uh so there's a number of problems with it and it depends on which kind of theistic evolution evolutionary perspective that you're talking about um the kind that I have in mind that has the, the biggest problem is the kind that denies a historical Adam and Eve. So there's a kind of theistic evolution that has... Uh, there, there's two kinds that I have in mind that are problems. There's a kind that denies a historical Adam and Eve, which goes against, militates against the clear affirmations of Scripture that there is a historical Adam and Eve. And that ends up undermining the gospel because in order for the headship of Christ to work out in Romans 5, you need a historical Adam. Um, so that kind of theistic evolution undermines the, the gospel. There's another kind that affirms a historical Adam and Eve, but they arise out of an evolutionary process that involves lots of death. Which means that the death comes pre-fall, and that has problems there because it means that God designed death into the very foundations of his creation, which again militates against lots of things uh, in Scripture, in Genesis, and, and later on that, that call death an enemy. So it means that God just, you know, wove in that to, to things. So, so those are the two that I have in mind. There's a very mild version out there i suppose uh that would say something along the lines of uh genesis one is fairly straightforward and correct um and then after that most of the species evolve from there and there's a time gap in genesis one there's a time gap between the creation and uh, and, and the fall, and then where events pick back up, like in the flood or something. There's no textual reason to believe that. So I find that is, they're, they're then changing, messing around with the text in order to justify uh, their assumption that there must be some kind of evolutionary theory bound up in, 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 in there somewhere. Um, and, and so I find that just... You know, it's a specious 
argument. It's just arguing that way on the basis of, you know, whatever. Okay, that makes sense. Um, yeah. But, like, there's always a but. Um, but, like, say they would bring up instances where you can have bones of dinosaurs and, like, you can date those to being, like, super, super old. And this is kind of, like, three hours long of debate that you can have about this one thing. But um, could you go into that just a tiny bit? Sure. Um, so I, I'm not the expert on on some of the, the science behind that, but there are plenty of people who have gone into it in detail. And, and quite frankly, I'm less concerned with that than the, uh, the fact that evolutionary naturalism undermines the possibility of science as well. Because it undermines something that we haven't talked about much called the uh, the principle of the uniformity of nature. So that's the basis of all scientific investigation, namely that the future will resemble the past. That is an assumption made, but never justified by the atheistic scientific community. Um, they have to assume it in order to do any kind of science because you have to have an observable, repeatable instance in order to justify your scientific argumentation. Um, and that requires the principle of uniformity to be true, that the future will resemble the past. Because otherwise, any kind of conclusion you drew, you wouldn't know if it would maintain tomorrow. So. All of the scientific proofs for things like physical laws, we, we would have no reason to believe on an evolutionary naturalistic perspective that they would hold tomorrow. That tomorrow when you woke up, you wouldn't just float away. You wouldn't have any reason to believe that without the principle of the uniformity of nature. That principle is assumed, not argued for, or accounted for in the scientific community. And as the skeptic David Hume pointed out, uh, that it is a unfathomably huge problem that not enough people actually recognize and talk about. And that Christianity is the only worldview that can actually justify and give an account for the principle of the uniformity of nature. It's a long answer to your question. Like you said, it's, it's an an a question that has long answers. Um, but there are guys who are on the up and up, Christian fellows on the up and up on the science stuff uh, on that question. I could pull some resources for you on carbon dating and things like that. But for me, it doesn't matter because it doesn't demonstrate atheism <laughs> whatsoever. Um, and I already know that the God of the Bible, as described in Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 22, is the only uh, sufficient precondition for the intelligibility of the universe. So I'm chilling. I don't want to sleep at night over it. Okay, I've got a long one up here. Let me see. Llama boy. I agree that naturalism on an individual basis is unreliable and you can't trust it. But surely that doesn't contradict evolutionary theory because it doesn't look at it on an individual level. It's many people exchanging information and then creating a theory which fits in 
into our natural world, such as Darwinism is supported because we see that very similar species have slight differences to do with their environment, as well as the fact that on the philosophical theory, uh, which is if we look at cats, there's lots of variants, but we know that they're all cats, meaning that surely there is one perfect cat that everything else has been branched from. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so I don't know if you were, you may not have been here at the beginning. I was talking um, about the distinction between what's called macro and micro evolution. The instances that you explained there are examples of micro evolution, of adaptations. Variance within a species is perfectly consistent with uh, just evolutionary, I mean, not evolutionary theory, um, Christianity. There's nothing contradictory about uh, between Christianity and adaptation variance within species the thing that darwinism doesn't prove but it draws an inference from variance within species to the development of species from an archetype from goo or a fish whichever you know pick your pick your starting place but there is a singularity that darwinism draws an invalid inference from variance within species to an archetypical uh, or I, it, maybe prototype is rather the maybe the best word to to a prototypical uh, starting point to a singular prototypical starting point, um, and that is an invalid logical inference. It doesn't follow logically. On top of the other problems that I've been listing, uh, Winston, but couldn't theistic evolution deal with the sustainability of laws of nature and stuff? Uh, Yes, and that's why I argued against it primarily on the basis of its inconsistency with Scripture. All right. We got more typers, so I'm going to slow down for about 15 seconds. Catch my breath. Uh, so what about a theistic evolution where God starts evolution and dips out of history? Well, again, inconsistent with scripture because we see him actively creating things in Genesis 1 and then actively participating in history across all of the Bible. Um, so that would be a deistic perspective. And deism has its own problems in establishing knowledge, just like the rest of them do. When we begin to look at uh, yes, we will talk about deism at some point because that's generally where you get into like like the the strong agnostics um, are often deists as well, and uh, they have epistemological problems just like the other perspectives do because they cannot account for their knowing, uh, their sense experience of the world being reliable, etc. You're going to see a common theme here. And it's going to be that the other worldviews cannot provide 
uh, an account of reality as we all live and breathe it every day. Um, they, they can't account for it. That's going to be the, uh, the a common theme in the critique. It will just play out a little differently uh, from worldview to worldview. So uh, here's the response. So macroevolution, surely we can see its natural fit through looking at fossils which are buried under the ground, which through the consistency of materials shows us, uh, shows us happened millions of years ago. We can see living things that do not exist at this point, yet no animals that exist now. Also in today's science, we can see and read DNA, which shows that humans are incredibly similar to animals, especially apes. So again, um, similarities between humans and other species doesn't establish uh yeah uh, si similarities between species does not establish cross-species evolution in fact the very fact that other species exist that have similarities militates against the evolutionary process as described by uh, evolutionary naturalism because uh, over the course of the years, the adaptation and, and, and the, the um, development of survival tools should mean that those other less survivable species should die out and should have died out and, and that the similarities should have coalesced. They, they should be coalescing toward a new singularity. Um, we should not expect the kind of diversity we have of life that we have from a, a singularity to the great diversity we have. So this is one of the other themes that we'll see, is that other worldviews cannot account for the unity and diversity of reality. So on evolutionary naturalism, you have a singularity that becomes a diversity and is supposed to converge back into a singularity. Except you don't see that at all. <laughs> You don't see it happening. In fact, you have diversity from as far back as we can see. Um, and you have continuous diversity, yet you have unity among the individual species. Um, and, and you don't have the, the, the crossover uh, episodes that, that they seem to argue for. The second thing uh, that, that you pointed to was the uh, fossil record, which... Uh, can be debated 10 ways a Sunday, and it, it's what, what will be shown through the debate every time is that there is a controlling assumption, a presupposition, that is determining the conclusion. I can promise you that. There's an assumption that is leading the way into what the conclusion will be. If you start with uh, an assumption that, that God doesn't exist, there's only the natural world, that evolutionary theory is is true by default, which you have to assume at the outset, 
uh, that will change your interpretation of the evidence you find. If you start with Genesis 1 is true, as the Christian scientist should, uh, being a Christian, then that will determine your interpretation of the evidence. Um, but there is on both sides. We, we can't pretend like there is not uh, a, a slew of assumptions that go into the investigation of the evidence. Um, yet again, I will return to the principle of the uniformity of nature. Uh, when it comes to the scientific investigation into things like the fossil record, it depends upon the principle of the uniformity of nature being true in order to establish carbon dating being reliable because carbon data from a million years ago has to be the same as carbon that we find now. It can't have changed. But they can't know that. And they can't establish that it hasn't changed because they cannot establish that nature is uniform across time. They have no reason to believe that on their worldview. And so even if their evidence led there, it, it wouldn't matter because they haven't even established yet on their worldview that, the, that their sense experience of carbon is reliable. And that's what I want to keep going back to is that the atheistic scientist who approaches a set of, of carbon-14 can't trust that his eyes are reporting to him the actual data that he's looking at accurately. He has no reason to denies. He has no reason Sorry, to trust. I, I can't be asked to type anymore. Sorry. Um... Like, so, again, you're talking about naturalism on an individual basis, which, again, I completely agree with. I think on an individual basis, we are all, like, kind of faulty, and our brain gives us wrong messages. It's all, like, the perspective, like, it's all kind of all weird, and you can't trust it. But this isn't just one person looking at it and then writing it down and then everyone believing in that thing. It's many people uh, coming, looking at it, getting the evidence, collecting the evidence, and then putting it together. And then... Uh, again, using that kind of theory to then explain things in uh, in the natural world. So, carb. I can't say for myself uh, because obviously I don't know. I'm not a geologist, like they were saying about millions of years. I'm not a geologist, so I can't tell exactly why everything that's uh, that's a thing. But uh, from what I've been taught, it's uh, there is a scientific reason why we can see that, and with carbon dates uh carbon levels i suppose i would assume that would also be honestly i don't know what i'm on about i regret speaking now you, you've got hey, me stumped it's you've got it, me it's stumped. all <laughs> hey it's okay man let me just uh mention something regarding uh one of the things you said which is a would be a valid point under different circumstances which is that hey you know this isn't just the one guy who can't trust his own eyes. There's other people coming alongside this guy and saying, yeah, your eyes are telling you the right thing because my eyes see the same thing. This is what's called an, uh, a, an argument ad populum and logic. And it's a logical fallacy that because lots of people believe this thing, then it must be true. So it's possible, you know, I, I don't think this is true, but 
again, from an evolutionary perspective, an evolutionary naturalistic world, it's possible that the one scientist is having a mass hallucination along with the rest. And this is funny because the atheists will use this argument about the resurrection of Jesus all the time. But when I use it against them, they don't like it that much. I'm not, not saying anything to you specifically, Lama, on that, yeah. but I'm, I'm saying uh, other folks that I've talked to in the past. They don't appreciate things getting flipped like this. So it's possible that they're having a mass hallucination of the data. It's also possible that the one guy is hallucinating all of the people around him. That they are confirmation bias because they are all extensions of his own consciousness. We could be in a solipsistic world where he's the only actual conscious being and he has generated illusions of everyone else to promote his own survival in the world. Now, that may sound silly or ridiculous, but they cannot give me a reason without relying upon the principle of the uniformity of nature, the reliability of sense experience, and the immaterial laws of logic. Without relying upon those things as being true, they cannot give me a reason why I'm wrong or why they shouldn't believe that that is possible. And because of that, I have no reason to believe their argument. Okay, yeah. Um, I guess one kind of thing was a bit off topic, which is then, like, what makes your kind of... I don't understand how does that make your theory, your kind of theism, then correct. Like, obviously, it might explain a couple of things that evolution doesn't explain, but at the same time, it's such a kind of massive kind of claim uh a lot of these things and i guess like you're talking about uh at the start like rationalism and everything uh like my kind of arguments like i need evidence or something but surely in a way i believe that your beliefs and my beliefs are equal and if i if i can't see pure pure evidence of mine because i can't because everything's very long away oh, like everything was a long time ago so i cannot physically see that so surely in a faith level i should have equal belief in that as well as the bible which was something that was written by someone who i don't know actually existed uh yeah like many years before i was born yeah so the reason that they're on epistemologically different levels is that the assumption that you would take um the, the presupposition you would take would not lead to the intelligibility of the universe around you so if I assume the Christian faith is true and all the truth claims that go with it, remember it's a it's a total worldview that touches everything in the universe. Um, if I read the Bible carefully, if I see what it, the claims it makes about me, about God, about the world, then I can give an account for all the things I've been talking about, the immaterial laws of logic, the principle of the uniformity of nature. I can actually do science consistently. I can trust my sense experience. Um, all of those things fall into place and have a foundation that gives an account for them. If I start with a Christian presupposition, if I start with other presuppositions, they won't do that. They won't actually lead to those things being true. And so I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't be able to get off the ground. I wouldn't be able to make sense of the world around me, my own life, my own subjective experience let alone objective reality. I wouldn't be able to make sense of those things without either stealing truth claims from the Christian worldview and assuming them, even though I would deny with my mouth 
that I believe those things. But my daily, day-to-day living, I would have to be assuming that those truth claims were correct. Um, because I don't live like the world is unintelligible. I don't. No one does. That, I, that I've met. Um, so so the, the, the reason they're on a different level is because one can give an actual account for reality and the other cannot. The second thing is, is that you actually do know Christianity is true. Because that same exact system that provides intelligibility of the universe also tells me through divine speech, God speaking, uh, down to man, that we all know him, we know he exists, we're made in his image, and that if we claim we don't, it's because of our sin and not because of the lack of evidence. In fact, that God says he has given sufficient evidence such that everyone is without an excuse, without a defense before him. They, 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 they can't say, you've given me, you're not giving me enough evidence, God. That's not a valid uh, line of reasoning because God says, yeah, actually, I, I've given you plenty of stuff. And that's why I said earlier, I'm not opposed to having reasons, but the reasons have to rest on something, a foundation. And that foundation can't be our own reason. It can't be our own sense experience. Um, it has to be something that can establish those things as being reliable. And I don't think that anything else besides the Christian worldview can do that. Okay. Uh, I think I'll leave it there. Uh, I think probably a lot of people, it's probably gone overboard and you probably want to leave as well. <laughs> it's all good, man. It's all uh, good. I mean, you, yeah, in my own personal knowledge, you have me stumped. Obviously, I don't know much about either side. So in believing what you say, I would have to believe you rather than believe the Bible because I'd need to find that knowledge myself. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I and I, I would prefer that. that you not believe me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 yeah, it, again, it's, it's not resting the intelligibility of things upon my word rather upon whether uh, um, whether the actual foundation that I'm resting upon actually proves the thing that I'm saying. And I think that if you did a careful study of the Bible, you would find that it does. Um, but yeah, I, I appreciate you admitting your own lack of knowledge. It's, it's a, uh, a sign of your image bearing of God. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, I'll just have to take your word for that. <laughs> yeah. All um, right. Thank you. Sorry for disturbing. For making you did not disturb anything. Thank you for the questions. It's very helpful for me, and and I, I hope everyone else was able to be helped by our interactions. It's good. It's a good thing. Uh, let me respond to this real quick and then we'll, we'll, we'll be done. I'm all right with people having their own opinions so long as they don't force it down my slash other people's throats, but aren't we doing the same thing with trying to convert people towards Christianity or are we just putting it out there? Um, so uh, there's interesting, I won't go into all of the very interesting language theories out there regarding this, but let me put it this way. Whenever you present anything that you believe sincerely and strongly to another person, 
you are at some level trying to convince them of its truth. You are. Um, and, and and that will come out in the pathos that you present it with, the, with the, the emotions you present it with, with the, the way that you present it to them. Um, you're always trying to persuade at some level. And the Bible commands us to attempt to persuade, to reason with, to give a defense for, to, to do those things. Um, but before all those who, who do not believe, um, that's what, when Jesus commanded us to disciple the nations and to teach them all that he had commanded us. That means that we have to do some level of persuasion. Um, and and some level of of pleading with them uh, to convert to Christianity um, for their own sake, obviously, and also out of our uh, obedience to Christ. So, uh, yeah, nothing wrong with it. Jesus tells to do it. So. There's a difference between that and just telling someone, become a Christian now. Why? Because I said so. That's that's not quite it. <laughs> All right. It is now uh, now 8.30. I think we've reached our time limit. Y'all are officially uh, unhostaged. We are, we are done. 